Genesis 3, 22 through 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Graham, thanks for leading and reading the word. And uh, Will and the band, thank you for... I really appreciated the pause in between the songs where we just say, hey, you know what? It was a rainy day. And it's sometimes like the first day back after a long weekend feels like you needed more of a long weekend. And so I was praying that you would, uh, would like rally in the bad weather and not just go to sleep as soon as you got home. And you did. You came. And so I hope, as Kate Ann prayed a minute ago, that the Lord speaks to us and he blesses us as we look and continue to look at these biblical themes. And so this is what we're doing for the next several weeks. Um, we've got a couple, of, a couple of guest speakers that are going to come in. Um, a friend of mine from Auburn is going to come on, um, on February the 7th. If you know Miles Fidel, he was in my first youth group, and so Miles leads um, Auburn Community Church. So Miles is going to come in on, on February 7th, and he's going to teach this. Um, Jason is going to come and teach uh, the theme of water on Valentine's Day and trace it through the Bible. What a romantic theme on Valentine's Day. And if you were curious, yes, it is a Tuesday this year. And so I am looking forward to taking these themes for the next several weeks. And they're kind of like, it's hard to exhaust these themes because the Bible is not written like a math problem. Now, a lot of guys in particular, Western men, love to look at the Bible as though it's a math problem. And so we want to learn words like uh, like propitiation, and we want to understand things um, like we want to kind of make substitutionary atonement also, also kind of a math problem. But the Bible is written in much more poetic story form. And so it doesn't shock me that some of the best work that I have read on these Bible themes has come from women who have approached the Bible and said, maybe it's not just fully a textbook. Maybe it's not just a bunch of formulas we can lay out and say, okay, so that's how atonement works. But maybe the Lord is telling us a story all the way through. And maybe in that story, there are complex moments that we really need to, to dig and get philosophical and look at. But overall, in your moments of crisis, if you walked in to work tomorrow and found out that you got fired, you probably would not think of the most complex formula you've ever heard in Scripture about God. You would probably just cry out to him. And hopefully somewhere in the recesses of your heart and in your mind, you can recall certain things like, Lord, you are the shade at my right hand and it feels really hot today. Lord, you, you're the living water and I am parched. You're the God who provides and I need provision. And that's what these themes teach us. They teach us the big picture of God. And so tonight as we look at sacrifice, I, I want to trace from Genesis 
all the way through to Revelation from cover to cover. And I've got a little timeline for you. I'll show you up on the big screen here. So the timeline, um, it's like very well written, I think, um, straight from the iPad. But so this is how we're gonna do all of our timelines. At the bottom here, we have creation. Uh, the, the bottom, the way you're looking at it, the bottom, what is this? Oh, left, there we go, because we read from left to right over here. That's right. Okay, so bottom left, creation, and then fall, and then all of these timeline, timelines, we're gonna look for redemption, restoration. That's gonna be the baseline for all of our timelines. Uh, and so what we have is the, a history of sacrifice in the Bible. And the first sacrifice takes place not long after creation. It takes place in Eden. And then there's Cain and Abel, and we're gonna talk about their sacrifice. Noah makes a sacrifice. Uh, Job makes a sacrifice. Abraham offers uh, an offering to God. And then Abraham is asked the ultimate offering to sacrifice his son. Uh, and then uh, Jacob has an offering. Then we get the Passover. After the Passover, we get this whole sacrificial system. And that sacrificial system lasts somewhere between 1,300 and 1,500 years. So if you're ever wondering, like, how long was it between, like, Moses and the Israelites and Jesus coming, it's, it's a little bit debated, but somewhere between 1,300 and 1,500 years, we have this big time gap where we live in this sacrificial system. All the followers of God live in this giant sacrificial system. And then finally, we get to the ultimate, ultimate sacrifice, which is Jesus' sacrifice. And then where we live now is in this really interesting period called the period of living sacrifices, and then, at, at restoration, when Jesus returns, there'll be no more sacrificial system. And so, let's, let's dig in, let's, let's look through, and for those of you that take copious notes, again, that's not always me, I'm okay with missing some blanks, but some of you are like, Hey, you, like you found me in the lobby when we finished last week and you said, hey, next week, can you have like a, a, a slide with all the verses you're gonna use? And I was like, okay, so knock yourself out. There you go. You can take a picture of that. That is all of the verses. We are not gonna read every one of those verses. We would be here till next Tuesday. But if you wanna know like where this idea comes from, there they are. So take a, take a picture, take a moment. We'll leave it up there for a second. I'm gonna pray, Father. Would you speak through your word tonight? Would you help us as we trace sacrifice from start to finish? Lord, may the anticipation build for Jesus the ultimate sacrifice. Lord, I thank you that through his blood, we can be in relationship with you. And then teach us, Father, as we close tonight, what does it mean to now be a living sacrifice. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So, you know, the, the ESPN show 30 for 30, some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you are like, ooh, I'm gonna go home and watch it tonight. Some of you are like, I have my favorite episode. The, some of you are like, what's that? And that's okay. Um, you can text some people back right now for a second while I give this illustration. Uh, so 30 for 30 is this incredible show, uh, and, and it, it basically follows a sports legend. And it follows these legends, and it really asks one of two things. Did they use their gift, or did they waste their gift? That's the biggest thing that 30 for 30 asks of these megastars. Did they use the gift? Did they waste the gift? 
this sacrificial system can seem very burdensome. Some of you are reading the Bible through in a year right now. Some of you are reading the Bible through in 90 days. Some of you are doing what is called the 30-day shred, and you're reading the Bible in 30 days. Um, We're just glad you surfaced to be here. Um, And so, like, but as you read this sacrificial system, it can feel very cumbersome. But all the sacrifices in the Bible are actually a gift. And the question is, how well did the people in the scriptures use the gift? And so what Graham read was basically the beginning of time. Graham read to us tonight the account of Adam and Eve and how beautiful it was when they became husband and wife and the poetry that Adam says when he says, whoa, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's the first recorded poetry in the scriptures. It's poetry when he sees his bride. And it's beautiful. But then he jumped to chapter three. And in chapter three, just a few verses later, we see that Adam and Eve have sinned and that God banishes them from Eden. He kicks them them out east of Eden. And so everybody in the Bible is trying to go west. The goal is to get back to where God is, and he kicks them out. They have to go east of Eden, and there's one verse, the verse right before where Graham started in chapter three. I just wanna read it to you because it's a verse that can slip away from you, but it's the first sacrifice in the Bible. Genesis 3, 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. The first sacrifice in the Bible is provided by God and is an innocent animal. It's the first death recorded. And so it's, we start to ask this question of, okay, the first death, what kind of animal? How did God kill him? What, how did he make those clothes? We can ask a whole bunch of different questions that we're not given the answers to. We would just have to guess and infer. But we see the first death, the first sacrifice, is from the hands of God himself, killing one of the things that he made in order to cover the shame, their nakedness, and remove their sin. He's restoring relationship. So covering shame and removing sin. And this is going to lead us to ask a bunch of questions. Will there be more sacrifices? Will they get more specific? Will we know if we're given the right one or not? Well, in chapter four, Cain and Abel's story is told. In chapter four, verses two through seven, Abel is a keeper of of the flocks and he offers to God a sacrifice. And the sacrifice that he offers to God is of the firstborn in his flock. And God receives Abel's sacrifice. This is another death of an innocent animal. And we're not told why. If you've ever read through Genesis and you're like, how did Abel know the right one to give? Because Cain is is a farmer And Cain brings the first of his produce. It's a first fruits offering, but it's rejected by God. And so it starts to to make these cloudy questions. And and obviously, if you know the story, even if you don't know the story, you've heard it in popular culture, Cain then kills Abel. It's the first death of a human. It's a murder. Um, And it happens, you know, in the first generation of humanity. And it's just this terrible spiral uh, for a long time in the book of Genesis. And so what we see here is, okay, for some reason, God is looking for an animal to be sacrificed and brought to him 
But there's a question of, of why, and is it going to get any more clear? And, and, and it also brings up the, the idea that some, some things that we bring to God, he receives. But some things we bring to God, and he rejects. And so it feels like if you put yourself in the shoes of the first people in the Bible, they really are stumbling around in the dark trying to figure out, how do I make God happy? What do I give him? As the story continues, we get to Genesis chapter 8, and it's only eight short chapters into the Bible when the world has been erased and reset has been, has been hit, and Noah gets the chance to be another Adam. God, in fact, gives Noah the same command that he gave Adam, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, populate it. Noah, the first thing that he does is he offers a sacrifice once he's on dry ground. Chapter 8, verses 20 through 22. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and he offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, and the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. What a sad statement. The Lord said, I've made monsters. And I'm not going to curse the ground because of the monsters. Their hearts are evil from the time they're young. Then, he says, neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. By the way, that last verse, verse 22, that's one you can talk about on the way home if you're like um, on one side very strongly of the environmental debate or the other side very strongly of the environmental debate. The Bible does say that until the Lord is done with the earth, the earth will keep doing its thing. That's verse 22 of Genesis 8. But that's not what we're here for tonight. Okay, Genesis 15, verses 7 through, the Bible has all kinds of things like that. It's amazing. Uh, Genesis 15, verses 7 through 21. I won't read you all of these verses, but this is Abraham offering a big sacrifice to the Lord. In fact, he offers a bunch of animals to the Lord. So now it's starting to make sense. The people are starting to understand when you bring a sacrifice to God, one of the main things you do is you shed blood. And you shed blood of innocent animals when you bring a sacrifice to God. Now we still don't have the law. It still has not been explained. But Abraham brings this sacrifice, and this is a beautiful moment. The Lord actually puts Abraham to sleep, separates. The animals are all cut in half. It's called a blood path sacrifice. It's what two dads would do, by the way. Um, two dads, would, would, when their daughter and son were getting married, they would make a blood path. They would separate animals, cut them in half, and the dads would walk through the paths, and they would say, if my son is unfaithful to your daughter or does anything to her, may this happen to me as has had happened to these animals. And then the, the other one, would walk through in the same thing, whichever dad that was would say the same thing. So it's like, kids, you better behave. Um, and so then, but here's what happens in this sacrifice, the Lord walks the path for himself and for Abraham. And so now in sacrifices, we start to see the frailty of man, but the stability of God, the dependability of God. The kindness of God to say, you can't ever live up to what you're offering when you offer these sacrifices. 
I will stand in your place. And then we get to Genesis chapter 22. And in Genesis 22, maybe the most famous sacrifice in the Old Testament takes place. Abraham is old. He is asked to go up on a mountain and sacrifice his only son. He goes up on the mountain. Isaac says, where's the sacrifice? Abraham says, the Lord will provide the sacrifice. Abraham lays Isaac on the altar, raises the knife, and an angel of the Lord stops his hand. Let me read you a few of the verses. Genesis 22, verse 8. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them. Verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, don't lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. So now, 22 chapters in, the revelation of God is starting to become more clear. There's something about innocent blood and only son and a very particular place. Abraham goes to the mountain God told him to go to. That mountain would one day be called the city of Jerusalem. Now, they had no idea when this was happening and when it was written. But we start to see this incredible foreshadowing, 22 chapters in, of an only son calling to be sacrificed by his father on a hill. And the story goes on. By the time we get to Genesis 35, Jacob is building an altar, and then Jacob and his sons uh, are banished to Egypt. And when they are in Egypt, they grow to two million strong. And by the time they grow to two million strong, the Pharaoh who used to know who the Israelites were, used to know Jacob, he, he's gone used to know Joseph, he is gone, and now this new Pharaoh, generations later, is in office, and the people are oppressed, and God begins to send plagues, one plague, two plagues, five, seven, the tenth plague is the plague of the death of the firstborn son. And in Exodus chapter 12, the Lord tells the people how to avoid the death of their firstborn son. And what do they do? They sacrificed a lamb. Now, when you read lamb and sheep in the Bible, a lamb is a sheep. It is typically considered a sheep as long as it's considered a lamb as long as it is under one years old. Once, it, once it's over one, it becomes a, uh, a sheep. Did I say that right? Lambs are little, sheeps are big. There we go. Uh, and so at this, you had to offer a lamb. And anyone who was covered by the blood of this lamb was spared death. Now the pieces are starting to come together. Innocent blood 
covering a person provides protection from the Lord. When we finally get to the book of Leviticus, Moses has been given the sacrificial system. The first seven chapters are a list of the whole sacrificial system. And verse 16 is one of the the, the penultimate chapters in the whole Bible on the sacrificial system. It describes perfectly what is called the Day of Atonement, and it perfectly describes exactly what Jesus would do when he went to the cross. So the Israelite people still don't fully understand what God is saying, but they're starting to get a grasp. There is a sacrificial system, and these sacrifices atone for my sin. And an explanation is finally given, because you've got to be asking, and we, Jason preached on this a few Sunday mornings ago, you've got to be asking if you hear this, like, why blood? Why does it have to be blood? Look in your Bible, and this is a great verse to like underline, to just note, Leviticus chapter 17, I'm sure it's well-worn in everybody's Bible, Leviticus 17, verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is blood that makes atonement by life. What happened in Genesis chapter 3? Adam and Eve sin. That equals death. And God said, life for life. So he begins to show us in Genesis 3, here is the death of an innocent creature to cover over your death. And the story has been building and building and building until finally we get Moses and the Israelites and we get this whole sacrificial system. But I want you to know, there were actually five types of sacrifice that were given to Moses and the Israelites. And so I've got them up on the screen here. Five different kinds of sacrifices. I think we have those on a slide. Do we? Ah, there they are. Five types of sacrifices. So the first two, the sin offering and the guilt offering, those were two sacrifices always done for sin. Like those, those were the ones that made me right with God. So anytime you read in the Bible that they offered a sin offering or a guilt offering, it was because they had sinned. However, these next three, the peace offering, the food and drink offerings, and the burnt offerings, the first two are, to make it more simple, the first two were for relationship. The next three were for fellowship. The first two helped me to be in relationship with God by having my sins atoned for. The next three bring me close to God the same God who spoke face to face as a man does with his friend, with Moses. And so now we start to understand, okay, the Lord has two kinds of sacrifices all throughout the Bible. Some sacrifices make me a child of God, but some sacrifices make me a friend of God. Now, I have no idea if the people understood this at all. But they, they had to start getting a picture of, okay, 
Not only does the Lord want us to be right with him and his, his people, but the Lord wants us to be close to him, like he walked with Adam and Eve. I want to just tell you one offering that you read over and over again. It's probably the best known offering, and so this is from a Jewish source. I'm just going to read it to you. It's called the burnt offering. Perhaps the best known class of offerings is the burnt offering. It's the oldest and most common sacrifice, meaning the people beyond the Jewish people did burnt offerings. The Hebrew word for burnt offering is ola, and it comes from a root word that means to ascend, like I'm going to move up to Atlanta. That's not what this says. I'm just telling you. I'm giving you an example. Uh, like I'm going to move up to Atlanta. It means, it means to ascend, and ola is completely burnt on the altar. This is important. Nothing left of it can be eaten. A burnt offering represents complete submission to God's will. The entire offering is given to God. Can't be used because it's burnt. It expresses a desire to commune with God. And in the process, it expiates sins, incidentally in the process, because how can you commune with God if you're tainted with sin? And an ola could be made from sheep, cattle, goats, even birds. So let's go back to the timeline real quick. So what we have, this first up until the dotted orange line, is we have this mysterious picture of people do wrong and God requires a death, but a death of an innocent animal, and as the structure goes on, you start to understand it's not just the death of an innocent animal, it's the death of a clean animal, and the death of a young clean animal, and the different animals that were offered meant different things for different sacrifices, and it becomes more and more clear, okay, God doesn't just want to forgive sins, he wants to be close to us. And so as the people of the Bible experience the Lord, they grow in their understanding of, okay, the same God who said people are wicked from their youth to Noah is crying out to have a relationship with us. What they're seeing in the sacrificial system is God loves me anyway. It's an amazing picture of this God who's calling out, I love you. Offer me these innocent things. Let their blood pour out. And let's be close. But the people had to have been exhausted by this. They saw that sin separates us from God. They saw that God wants to be in fellowship with us. Sin needs a sacrifice. God made the first sacrifice. Innocent animals are required. It also shows us that sin is expensive, did you know one of the sacrifices you'd have to bring a bull? Now, I don't have like a farmer's almanac in front of me. Um, I don't know what the market price is for a bull right now. But if, if, I, if Heather and I got into a fight yesterday and it was my fault and the sacrificial system was still intact and because I had offended my wife, I had to go bring a bull, one, you would know that I was like bringing a bull. You'd be like, Jesse Thomas, walking the bull down to the church? Like, yeah, man, I don't know what he did. Was Heather with him? Nope. Oh, I know what he did. 
Uh, and so like, you know, you're like, I'm bringing the bull down. You're like, Thomas blew it. But not only did Thomas blow it, you would know like, and he's poorer now too. Because bulls cost money. And then if you thought about it a little bit more, you'd be like, and that poor bull, they're just, they're going to kill it. And so you would imagine the people had to think a little bit of, does this, is it going to get better? Is this as good as it gets? And so the intertestamental time between Malachi and Matthew, people had a long time to think. And going back to Isaiah, even a few hundred years before that, people had a lot of time to start thinking and wondering, will it get any better than this? And as they began to wonder, will it get any better than this? They searched the scriptures. They scoured the book. And as they scoured the book, they started to understand, oh, these things are a foreshadowing. And one day, there'll be a sacrifice that ends all sacrifices. There was a group of people that moved into the desert. They were called the Essenes. One of the most famous Essenes of all time is John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. John the Baptizer, when he lived out in the desert, he and his people were scouring the text and scouring the text until they finally started to give a nickname to this, this person who would come. And you know what the, what the nickname was that they gave to the person? Turn with me to John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, verse 29, John the baptizer sees Jesus walking toward him. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the baptizer and all those people had come up with this nickname. They said, The Messiah is going to be a lamb. Because there's no way God wants us to keep this sacrificial system going day after day and week after week and year after year. This has got to be a reminder that we are broken beyond repair. And the blood of bulls and goats, it can't fix us. And the scriptures seem to point towards one day there will be an ultimate sacrifice. In fact, the very next day in John chapter 1, verse 35, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. Can you imagine how hungry the religious Jews would have been at this point? The truly godly religious Jews. Oh, please, please bring the end of the sacrifices with the perfect sacrifice. Make us right with you once for all. Don't let it depend on the next sacrifice and the next sacrifice and the next sacrifice because what happens when I miss one or I get tired of doing them or we get banned from being in the temple or we get kicked out and we get exiled. All these questions, all these heartaches, all that blood. Then in Matthew chapter 26, at the end of Jesus' earthly life and ministry, He's sitting around the disciples and they're having the Passover meal all the way back to Exodus chapter 12. They're having the Passover meal. Remember the blood of the lamb gets painted over the doorpost and you get to live. And Jesus in the Passover meal just spells out so clearly, I am the lamb. 
This bread, when you eat it, it's my body broken for you. This wine, when you drink it, it's my blood poured out for you. I'm the answer to Genesis chapter three, the first sacrifice. When he continues to the cross in Matthew chapter 27, the final verses of the cross account, verses 51 uh, through 52. It says, and behold, as Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised And coming out of the tombs, I'll just read verse 53. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. And they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. This is the Lamb. Veiled access to God was a thing of the past the blood of animals pouring out that I could be in right relationship and in fellowship with him is over. And one incredible, beautiful passage in the book of Revelation, chapter five, verses six through 10. Once we get a peek into heaven after Jesus has ascended, it says this, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sit down to all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood, Leviticus 17, 11, the life is in the blood, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Do you see the whole story now? In Genesis chapter three, God makes the first sacrifice. In Matthew 27, God makes the last sacrifice. And the whole of the Bible is the story of him calling us back and foreshadowing that he would would be the one to end all the sacrifices and bring us in right relationship with him. All these shadows that are given in scripture. I wanna read you a quote from a great little little book. It's uh, It's called The Bible Themes Handbook. It's not like super originally named. But let me just read you this quote. It says, all other means of sacrifice are a shadow of the sacrifice of Jesus. A shadow may tell the shape or the size of an object, but it hardly describes it in detail. Jesus' sacrifice vividly shows us what God intended sacrifice to be. 
while the former sacrifices and sacrificial systems were only dim representations. So going back to that 30 for 30 illustration, the most famous episode of 30 for 30 is Bo Jackson. You don't know Bo. And it's a great episode. You should all go watch it. I don't care if you're Alabama fans. Alabama fans have watched it. They love Bo. They love to hate Bo. Um, And so, like, Bo, one of the greatest athletes in modern history. The whole episode's incredible. But Bo says something in there. Bo says, I knew I had a gift. I knew God. He says in the episode, I know God has given me a gift for athletics. I can jump higher than people. I can run faster than people. I could do stuff without much effort. Most people couldn't do with lots of trying. It was a gift. And so the episode is all about how well did he steward that gift. And he stewarded it really well. He, he, he's still going strong and helping young men grow up to be better men. Like the whole episode's a great episode. And the reason it's kind of like this feel good episode is because you see a guy who knows he was given a gift and takes really good care of the gift. And so my question for you is, have you, have you been given the gift of the lamb? To be put real simple, are you covered by the blood of the lamb? Are you a Christian? Are you born again? Have you been saved? And if the answer is yes, then you've been given a great gift. And the question is, how well are you stewarding the gift? There's a really interesting verse because the sacrifices are over. Hebrews chapter 10, go read it. Hebrews chapter 9, go read it. Incredible passages about how the blood of bulls and goats couldn't fix it. And Jesus is the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. So the sacrifices are over. Access to God is allowed. Like here it is. It's here. We don't have to do any more sacrifices. But the call to worship that Will read, Peter uses the word that you are a living sacrifice, giving spiritual sacrifices. And turn with me to Romans chapter 12. In Romans 12, I'll, I'll show it to you from my, my iPad, my trusty iPad. In Romans chapter, chapter 12, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. So Paul, in the most complex work of theology we've been given, the book of Romans, brings up sacrifices. And he knows, Paul, of all people, knows the sacrificial system is over. I don't have to do anything else. So why in the world would Paul say, now you should be a living sacrifice? I don't need it. I don't need any more sacrifices to be saved, to go to heaven, So what's he talking about here? Why would he bring that up? That brings up bad memories. That brings up bulls and goats and and hard times at the temple. And I mean, it brings up like some hard times in scripture. So why, why would he bring this up? He says, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Then he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There's a few things that have to be noted here. 
The first is this. This passage, whoops, I did not mean to strike you out. This passage is directed to Christians. And it says, therefore, brothers, I, offer, I, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as what? As living sacrifices. So Christians should be living sacrifices. And how does he encourage us to do this? Why? Because of the mercies of God. Think about that. What are the mercies of God? Forgiveness, peace. Sometimes we see miracles. Sometimes there's financial provision. Sometimes there's relational, incredible things that happen between people. There's so many mercies of God that happen through the cross. Access to God in prayer. We go to heaven when we die. We spend eternity with him. We can, we can see what was taking place in that Revelation chapter 5 passage we just read. There's so many mercies of God. So by the mercies of God, I'm supposed to present my body. I'm supposed to be a living sacrifice. This is an interesting thing. Uh, down here we have the worship altar. And I'm supposed to stand in it. I'm supposed to be this, this burnt offering. It's one of the five, but it's not a sin offering or a guilt offering. It's got to be one of the other three. And I think what Paul is referring to here, because Paul was Jewish, I think Paul is referring to burnt offerings. Paul is saying, you and I, we need to be burnt offerings. Remember, a burnt offering, you didn't get anything back. The whole thing gets burnt up. There's nothing left to take home. And a burnt offering is a cry for fellowship with God. And so I'm supposed to be this burnt offering, this living sacrifice. And what am I supposed to present? I'm supposed to present my body. It's holy and acceptable to God. And this is not, this is not for spiritual atonement, removal of sins. Folks, this, this whole sacrificial system, this picture that we're giving of the, the, this altar that we're supposed to stand in, this, my friends, this is worship. Worship is not singing songs. Worship is not showing up at church. All those are a part of worship. But complete worship is when I'm a burnt offering and the Lord has every part of me. And these great specific instructions, not to be conformed to the world, but, but instead to be transformed. And how are we transformed? We renew our mind. How do I renew my mind? Christian community, prayer, time in the word, uh, getting rebuked by people, encouraging people, receiving that, lining it up with scripture. My mind gets transformed. And you know what I start to say? I start to say, oh my goodness, I'm just like my parents. And I'm not talking about your parents' parents. I'm talking about Adam and Eve, the OG parents. What this shows me when I start to renew my mind is I can't figure out my left from my right, my up from my down, the right from wrong. When I try to do life on my own, it always messes up. But when I offer my whole being on the altar to God after being saved, that's when I start to think different, and I talk different. I post different things than other people. I become holy 
And not only, not only do I become holy, but I, I also become full of hope. Holiness and hope are what happened here. Do you know the opposite of holiness? That is a terrible rendition of holiness. Holiness? Ness. There we go. Okay. Holiness and hope. Do you know the opposite of holiness? It's common. And do you know one of the opposites of hope? Restlessness. One of the ways to tell, not just am I a Christian, but is does the Lord have every part of me? Is how much holiness, how much uncommonness is in you? compared to the rest of the world, the way you date, the way you think. That cute brunette over there that I married 21 years ago, we didn't kiss the whole time. Like, we waited till we were, like, you know, you know getting married and stuff. Like, we, we decided, you know what? We've, we've done things in the past with other people, and it didn't work out so well because we were a lot like our OG parents, Adam and Eve. And when the Lord started to renew our minds as we dove into the Scriptures and dove into Christian community, we started to think differently, and it was what, at the time, I wouldn't have called it holy. I I really couldn't have put words around it, but our behavior became holy because it became different. It became unique. It wasn't common, and our relationship was filled with hope and not restlessness. We had this holiness and this hope as we stood on this altar, which was an act of worship, not to, not to get God's favor, but to say thank you to him. That's the New Testament sacrificial system. I'm not earning anything from God. I'm saying thank you. And then the next day I say thank you again. And I say thank you again. Here's the problem with living sacrifices. Living sacrifices like to run. Dead sacrifices don't move as much. But you and I, we're living sacrifices. And so as we land the plane tonight, is there any part of you that's crawled off this altar? What an incredible sacrifice Jesus has made to bring us to the Father. How well are we stewarding that sacrifice? How much does my life say thank you? If I'm jumping off the altar, if I'm becoming more common, if I sense a bunch of restlessness in my life, this Tuesday night is a great night to just pray this one simple prayer. Lord, show me any part of me that's off the altar. Pray with me. Father, I thank you that you love us so much that you sent your son and you ended that sacrificial system. And now as a response of saying thank you to Jesus, I get the chance every day to worship you by offering you my body and my mind. And Lord, I imagine there's some folks in the room that have not experienced the freedom of the blood of Jesus. 
And I ask that right now, Lord, you would move their heart. You would draw them to you that they would know Jesus and the freedom he gives. The joy to be called your child. And Lord, I would also imagine there's a bunch of us tonight that are crawling off the altar. Starting to think maybe we do know best and maybe you don't. But Lord, you are kind and you are good, even in the no's that you tell us. Lord, by your grace, show us any part of us that is off the altar of worship. And Lord, draw us back to you. May we repent and climb back on the altar and see that you are good. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.